Hey everyone! Welcome to the RUF at TC podcast. RUF is a community on campus learning about who Jesus is and what he has done for us. For more information about and ways you can support RUF at TCU, please visit ruf.org slash TCU. Well, when um, I was immediately after college, I'd moved back to my hometown and I was working for a high school ministry called Young Life. Many of you might be familiar with that ministry. It's a great ministry. And one of the things that I did when I was working for them in an attempt to get to know high school students better was that I, was, I coached, a, uh, coached the lacrosse team at the school that I was at. I played lacrosse in high school and in college. This was an opportunity for me to get to know the, co- the high school students better. And I loved doing it, except when something happened. There was always this time somewhere in the season, and you would see it uh, individually. It didn't happen with all the players, but every once in a while you would see somebody just, they would be going through the motions, they would run the drills, if they were in the game, they would run up and down the field, but there was something lacking there. There was no heart. It was a going through the motions. The heart was not in it. And I don't know if you've ever experienced something like that, but I hated it when my players quit. They just quit. Now, I I never got mad at them if we lost games and they tried. But the thing that made my blood boil was when they just gave up and they were just going through the motions. Maybe you've known something like that, where you've gone through the motions in your life. Maybe it's been with a sporting Uh, event or sport or something like that. I can remember doing that in my eighth grade year when I was quitting soccer. I was just cashed. I didn't want to play anymore. Maybe it was with an art, you know, something with, with the arts, maybe performing arts or a musical instrument. Maybe it's been with people. Maybe you've been in a relationship, the boyfriend or a girlfriend, and the heart is gone, right? And you're just going through the motions. I think all of us can relate to that reality where externally we are doing something, but internally our heart, the very core of us, is disengaged. Or we have grown cold in the thing that we are doing. Does this sound familiar to you? Here's the dagger. This can happen with our relationship with God as well. That we can merely just be going through the motions. That we can just merely be caught up in the trappings of religion. And doing all of this stuff in such a way that the heart is divorced from or is very cold to the one whom we, we are called to live. Well, i got good news for you tonight. If you've ever been there, or if that's you right now, then these first seven verses of the second chapter of Revelation really are for you. Because what we're going to see tonight is the risen Christ speaking to a church that is like that. They have, if you saw it in the text, they had lost their first love for Jesus. And so Jesus comes to them, yes, with a word. And He's going to say to them, did you catch it in verse 7? Listen, have ears to hear. And so I'd like to address that tonight under three headings. What do we need to hear? What do we need to hear tonight? How do we need to have our ears opened? And I'd like to suggest to you that we need to listen as the church in Ephesus needed to listen. And that we need to understand what it is 
that Jesus has to say to us. And I'd like to suggest three things. First of all, this is going to show us what they had. Secondly, what they lost. And thirdly, what they needed. But in by looking at them, I think we'll see a mirror of our own hearts and lives. Because it will show us what we have. What we lost and what we need as well. That's my three main headings tonight. I'd like to suggest to you this before we go any further about these chapters 2 and 3 in the book of Revelation. The part of Revelation that we're looking at is a bit different than the rest of the letter. You'll notice in these two chapters, verse 2 and 3, that John is sending letters, as it were, to uh, the churches they are mentioned. Um, Jesus is writing to these seven churches. There's seven of them. In each of those seven sections, there is a common pattern that exists. I'm giving this to you as a way to know how to read this on your own. You'll notice this, that there is, there is believe it or not, there are seven things given. Okay? You all getting the pattern yet? Okay? And it is this. There's a command to write given to an angel of the church in that region. There is Christ being described in terms from chapter 1. And each of these descriptions is unique to the particular needs of that local body. So we're going to see that how that relates tonight for the church in Ephesus. You'll see too, I mean thirdly, praise for their good works. A critique, fourthly, of some sort of sinful pattern. An exhortation or an encouragement to repent. A charge to listen. And then seventhly, the promise of blessing to those who do. We cannot cover all of them in our time this semester. So tonight, I'm going to take the first one as a representative example so that you might see the pattern unfold over, these next, over those next six churches if you'd like to do that on your own. And so here's my main idea tonight. Jesus wants our love. He wants our hearts. And He will stop at nothing, y'all, to warm our cold hearts up again, to draw us out. This is so critical because if you're like me, Christians can grow cold in their love for God. And so tonight, let's begin by taking a look firstly at what I mean when I say that I want you to see what they have. Take a look with me there first at these first verses in, chat, in verses 2, 3, and 6. You'll notice immediately the praise that the church receives. There are actually, here it is again, ten recommendations Ten praises, ten things that they have good going for them if you read carefully. But for our purposes, I just want to point out a few. Turn your eyes to the second verse there. You'll notice immediately that, that Jesus himself immediately begins to praise, praise the church in Ephesus for these things. Your works, your toil, your patient endurance. You see, they patiently endured waiting on Christ. In the midst of suffering and persecution, knowing that He would one day come and put all things to rights. This demonstrates, firstly, their faithfulness in the face of suffering. Hang on to that. Secondly, I want you to see this. Notice how they pursued moral righteousness as well. Verse 2 tells us that they did not bear with those who are evil. Moreover, this puts on display, secondly, this idea of that they had a heart and a passion for right teaching and doctrine. The Ephesian church tested false teachers and found them out to be false. And then look lastly at verse 6. They hate the very things that Jesus Himself hates. Did you catch that? Verse 6 reads, This you have. You hate the work of the Nicolaitans, which I also hate. 
Now, hate there is not so much an emotional disposition, but one of preference and one of, um, one of reference uh, to the thing being mentioned. So Jesus doesn't hate the Nicolaitans, as it were, in some, um, in some sort of way that is like hotly dispassionate. But the point there is, is that he stands against, as it were, the works that they're... And we'll take a look at what that is in just a moment. But for now, I just want you to see this. Listen. Faithfulness under trial. A heart for moral righteousness. Orthodox or right and correct teaching and doctrine. And a shared disdain for the works of an errant group of people. And Jesus is praising them, y'all. I mean, can you imagine what that would be like? It's to say, Ryan, or whatever your name is, this you have going right for you. Yes. Good job. Praise from Jesus. That's what he's saying. And before we go any further, I just want you to see that this is critical because Jesus is actually showing us something here. He is showing us something very challenging. Why? Because I think we live in a day and age where we tend to think that following Jesus is sort of a do-whatever-you-want type of religion. you got your thing that you want to do with Jesus, and I've got mine. And it doesn't really matter what you do. And what Jesus is saying is this, no, truth has a dividing line. There are some things that are actually praiseworthy and some things that aren't. There are things that really are true and things that are false. There are things that Jesus stands for and there are things that Jesus actually stands against. And so I ask you just by way of application, how are you aligning yourself with Jesus? Not saying, Jesus, come be on my team. Come be about the things that I'm about. Because here's the great confidence that you can have. That when you stand with Him, you actually receive the words of blessing that He gives. This I praise you for. This you have going right for you. And I want that to be an encouragement. Why? Because I want you to see that for those of you who are living faithfully, that you were eager seeking to please your Lord, you can hear your Lord's words over you. Well done, my good and faithful servant. I think sometimes it's easy to come in here and just say, kick my butt for me, Ryan. Tell me what I'm doing wrong. Everybody likes that because it gives us something to leave out of here and try better at. But to actually have Jesus put His hand on your shoulder and say, thank you. Thank you for your faithful endurance. Thank you for laboring. What you are doing, you are doing well. Press on, my son or my daughter. Man, what a blessing it is to have that. And I think the other thing is this. I want you to see that the error of the Nicolaitans there in verse 6 was, was simply this. And this is why this is so important. The error of the teaching of the Nicolaitans was that Christians could be successful in the pagan non-Christian culture, namely that which was Rome, if they took the beliefs of Christianity and synthesized them with the state. You see, the Nicolaitan religion or works were syncretistic. It was the idea of taking things and mishmashing them together. It was a Jesus plus mentality. A little bit of Jesus, a little bit of the values of the culture, wed them together, voila, and you've got the teaching of the Nicolaitans. Now, does this sound familiar at all? This is still around in our day and age, right? 
I was talking with a student today at lunch, and we talked about how even certain political views from both sides of the spectrum can be wedded to Jesus and say, see, Jesus is with me. No, Jesus is with me. And what the error of the Nicolaitans is, is Jesus is with nobody. It's anybody with Him. That's why the earliest Christian profession, do you know what it was? In Greek, it was Christos Kyrios. Christ is Lord. And to profess those words meant that you didn't say this. Kaiser Kyrios. Caesar is Lord. The state, the government, the culture is Lord. No. For Christians, the earliest Christian profession was always Christos. Christ is Lord. And you know what happens when you begin to speak like that? You get exiled to the island of Patmos just like John did. Because you become an enemy of the state. Jesus looks at that situation and He looks at you and me. And He says there may come a time. There may come a time when your profession must be Christos Kyrios. Christ is Lord. In fact, if you're a Christian, it's already what you've made. And there may come a day where it might be the state, it might be friends, it actually might be a boyfriend or girlfriend, a parent. Something like that might stand against you. And can you just hear me for a moment? Do you know who stands with you? Jesus. He stands with you. He stands with you. That's what I hope you'll see firstly, what they have. Secondly, that's not all that he has to say. You probably caught it there. The first thing we're told here is that the words of encouragement that Jesus gives his people in Ephesus, what a powerful moment this would have been. But this was not all that Jesus had to say, was it? What else did he have to say? Take a look with me here as we point this out. Secondly, at what they lost. It's in verses 4 and 5. Let's just read those together again quickly. He writes, But I have this against you, that you have abandoned the love you had at first. Remember, therefore, from where you have fallen. Repent and do the works you did at first. If not, I will come to you and remove your lampstand from its place unless you repent. Now listen, what I want you to see here that is what they lost is they lost their love for Christ. And I want to stress this, that word right there where it says this, but this I have against you, you have abandoned, that is the best word that I can possibly think of for this. One, one Greek lexicon puts it this way. It is this, it's a willfully leaving. It is a stop doing something with the implication of complete cessation. It is to give up. It is to quit. It is to stop. And you know what this is saying? To the church at Ephesus, it is saying that they had given up the love affair that they had with Jesus at the beginning. Isn't that something? Isn't that amazing? You see, what might be the most shocking critique of the letter? Jesus tells them that, I mean, imagine this. You have quit loving me. You have given up on me. What has happened? What has happened that your heart has turned cold towards me? Do you hear the, do you hear the words of a shunned lover in that? That's the image. Where are you? Where are you, son? Where are you? Where are you, my, where are you, my love? Where are you? That's what Jesus is saying here. And this is what is so amazing about this. Remember everything I said earlier? Right doctrine? A stand from your righteousness? 
that all of that was there, but what wasn't? Love. Love. Delight. Delight in the one that made them and knew them and saved them and redeemed them and rescued them. They were doing all of the right things devoid from a heart disposition of love and delight. And Jesus knows it. He sees it and He calls them out on it. Oh. I mean, I just think about this because I know my own marriage. This is very akin to things that happen inside marriage. And while by God's grace, Laura has never said to me, where is the love that you had for me at first? Where is your heart? I can only imagine the sorrow that would come if she said something to me like that. But I do turn the tables a little bit and I do press in on you. For those of you who struggle, Jesus does look at you with the tenderest of eyes. And yet with the sternness, that he, all the sternness He can muster. And He says, where has your heart for me gone? What has happened? What has happened? And that is not meant to make you sh- feel ashamed. It's not meant to back you into the shame corner. But rather to begin the process of drawing you out. To see His mercy and His love again. You see, you can really only begin to know the love of Christ for you to the degree that you are willing to be honest about the coldness of your own heart. And Jesus says there might be distance between... I've gone nowhere though. You see, a former pastor of mine used to put it like this. He used to say about this very particular verse, he would say, Jesus stands and He asks us and He says, Where... Have you run to lovers less wild than me? Where have you gone? It's it's that exact same thing that God speaks out in in Genesis chapter 3. Where are you? Why are you hiding from me? I love you. I am your lover. That's the picture of this message. It's fantastic. It's so beautiful. And here's what I want you to see just by way of application for our own hearts is that I want you to see that there is, the, there is a very huge potential that you can begin doing all of the right things for Jesus and be lacking love in your heart for Him. And so Jesus will come to you just like He does this church in Ephesus and He will say, you've lost the love for which you had for me at first. Remember that and go back to it. Here's an illustration. Some of you have walked with Christ for a long time in your life. Others of you have, in fact, walked with Him very, very briefly. But for those of you that can remember, what was it like at the beginning? What was the joy like to knowing that God loved you? That God had rescued you and cared for you? What was it like when the moments felt sweet? Do you begin to sense that? God is asking all of us to go back to the beginning and to remember the love we had for Him at first. And to do what then? Well, you caught it right there in the text. To repent. To turn. To first, though, to... The text says to remember. Do you know how much... Like, remembering is a spiritual exercise and a spiritual discipline. To go back to former days and just to recall. That's what Jesus is calling us to see and to do. 
And then to do what? To do the works that you did at first. Most commentators point out particularly that this has primarily to do with the idea of witness, the idea of being light, the idea of letting our light shine, as Jesus says in Matthew chapter 5, that you are light of the world, that you are the salt of the earth. And how, how are you putting on display for the watching world the love affair that Jesus has with sinners like you and me? That's what, it, that's what it's getting at. I'm going to show you from the text in just a moment why I think that's the case too. But that's that picture there. So I think this is critical for us to see. I can labor, and maybe you can too, out of a sense of duty and not out of a posture of love. You see, I can spend hours preparing sermons, spending time with students, without a profound sense of love for what God has done for me. It is a struggle, I might add, for all of us, no matter in what capacity we're serving Him. One mentor's words, I just love this. He says this, what, and this you can write this down, what have you done today for Jesus out of sheer love for Him? Man, that just gets me. Does it get you? If we say the Gospel is as wonderful as it is, what today reflects that love out into the watching world? So this is not a guilt trip. It's not a guilt trip. Rather, it's a pulse check to the affections and love that we say that we have for Christ. So this is where it starts getting good. Because right now, if you're like me, you feel about yay big. <laughs> right? Because what the text is saying is, you don't love Jesus like you should. And you might go, okay, good, so where do I start? Like, how do I get out of this hole? Like, what's going to change my heart to actually love Jesus? And the text is going to show us, y'all. And that's where it's going to take us third, to what they need. To what they need. What they need to actually see. Or as the text says, what they need to hear. What is the last thing that they need to hear or know so that their lives would be lived out faithfully to Christ? We're told two things. Verse 1. You'll remember from a few weeks ago the language that we spoke of, the idea of lampstands and stars. If you have a Bible, if you have it out, look at the very beginning. I said this would happen. To the angel of the church in Ephesus, to the words of him who holds the seven stars in his right hand, who walks among the seven golden lampstands. That is an absolute, this is, this is a description of verse 12 and 13 from chapter 1. And John is taking that imagery and applying it to the needs of the church at Ephesus. Now, that would be helpful to ask then. Then what was the point of stars and lampstands? Well, lampstands were, were light. It was the idea of a, a candle, as it were, demonstrating light through the church to the watching world. And what's so amazing about this text is that, I love this, the text tells us that Jesus is in the midst of the lampstands walking and that He holds in His right hand the stars, the, the, the seven stars which we're told are the, seven, are the um, seven churches and the seven angels there. Now this is what's so critical. That imagery of light gets back to that issue of witness that I talked about. And so that's why I draw that connection and say, when Christ is talking about a love that is lost, He's primarily talking about a witness to the watching world. But here's what I want you to see, because this is where the hope comes in. Jesus is standing in their midst. And He's holding them. He's holding them, y'all. 
He's holding you. And I want that to begin to stir you because like a father, well, this imagery is different, like a father holding his child because he loves him or, him or her, gazing into his face. That's what I want you to think about. Because that's the way that Christ gazes on his children. He delights in them as a father does his son. Secondly, I want you to see this. I want you to see that Jesus holds this and His church, His people, in His powerful and caring hands. Jesus is walking in their midst. He is with them. In the midst of all of their failure to love well, His presence has remained. He has not gone anywhere. Though your love for Him be cold, do you know what His heart for you is? Boy, it hasn't changed one bit. It has not changed one bit. And the other thing I want you to see, it's not just His presence, but He makes a promise to them. Not one based on their moral do-gooding or performance. Rather, He gives them a promise, a reminder, did you catch it in verse 7, of a tree in paradise. And it goes all the way back to Genesis chapter 2 and 3, where we're told that God Himself did something with Adam and Eve. Do you know what it was? He walked among them. Oh, do you catch it? John's drawing on that imagery. Just like He walked among the garden. That same, that same God walks among them as a church. It's His presence there. And in light of that, this. When they sinned in the garden, the tree of life in His paradisal garden, which as one commentator points out, symbolizes the life-giving presence of God. All of this was cut off from them. You might remember this from Genesis chapter 3. It reads as follows. He, God, drove out the man and the woman at the east of the Garden of Eden, he placed the cherubim, which is an angel, and a flaming sword that turned every way to guard the way to what? The tree of life. The thing that they are cut off from in the garden, they now can possibly have in Christ. It's His presence again. God's presence in that way. But now, and we too, are promised access back to that tree and back to God's presence. Was this for those who could crush the Christian life perfectly? No, it was for people. It was for people who lost their love for Him, y'all. That's what's so staggering. Listen to what Eugene Peterson puts. He puts it this way. No affirmation can be sustained. That is, what you have. And no discipline can be carried through. That is, what you don't have. Without adequate motivation. The promise of eternal life not as reward, but as destiny. Key phrase there. Which completes life begun in faith is the adequate motivation for Him who conquers. In other words, what this is saying is Jesus holds in His hands even you and me when our love for Him fails. He never lets us go. And the certainty of that promise is the very motivation to have us grow in love for Him. Let me see if I can give you an illustration. There's a story of a man named David Ireland. David Ireland wrote a book called Letters to an Unborn Child. He wrote this book because he had a severe neurological condition that was to take his life and he wanted to record the character of his wife, their mother, and the work that she did to care for him in his condition. The condition, however, left him paralyzed from the neck down. And so he was completely helpless unable to do simple tasks. He retells in this book a date night 
and how his wife's character is put on display as she cares for him. Listen to what he writes. It means that she has to dress me, shave me, brush my teeth, comb my hair, wheel me out of the house and down the steps, out in the garage and put me in the car, take the pedals off the chair, stand me up, sit me in the seat of the car, twist me around so that I can be so that I'm comfortable, fold the wheelchair, put it in the car, go around to the other side of the car, start it up, back it out, get out of the car, pull the garage door down, get back into the car and drive off to the restaurant. And then it starts all over again. She gets out of the car, unfolds the wheelchair, opens the door, spins me around, stands me up, seats me in the wheelchair, pushes the pedals out, closes and locks the car, wheels me in the restaurant, then takes the pedals off the wheelchair so I won't be uncomfortable. And when we sit down to have dinner, she feeds me throughout the entire meal. And when it's over, she pays the bill, pushes the wheelchair out to the car again, and reverses the same routine. After this one night, and this just one night, she lays him in the bed, and marvel of marvels, after all that, she says to him, Honey, thank you for taking me out to dinner. What happens in you when you hear that story? Do you not see the picture of how love for you is the only thing that will warm your heart for Him. And He promises to do that because He walks among the lampstands as one who trims wicks and adds more oil. The Gospel of Matthew says a smoldering wick, a smoldering candle, He will never snuff out. A bruised reed he will never break. But he tends it back to health. Friends, whose responsibility ultimately underlies your lack of love for Jesus? Jesus. He will bring it back. That's the great hope of the gospel. That's the great hope of the gospel, y'all. And so we repent in light of that. We turn back to Him. Listen to what this same John writes. He says, In this is love. Not that we have loved God, but that He hath loved us and sent His Son to be the propitiation for our sins. I love what Marva Dawn writes. She says, No matter how active our Christian faith, we do not serve God's best purposes if love does not motivate what we do. Or if you like better, the prophet Olaf the snowman... He says this, only an act of true love will thaw a frozen heart. Or one of my all-time favorite theologians, a man by the name of John Calvin writes this, the goal of the happy life is to be loved by Him. Were the words of a spiritual mentor in my life Jack Miller, when asked what people could pray for for him, he would say, pray that I see how much Jesus loves me. Now that's wisdom. Because if you see how much Jesus loves you, your heart is set inflamed to love Him back. That's where it begins. And that's what Jesus is doing in this text. So friends, take hope and courage tonight. Here's what I want you to see. 
I want you to see that Jesus will tend to your lack of love. He has promised to do it. And how do I know that He will? Because let's go back to the garden where that flaming sword was, that sword of judgment that will give us access. Somebody must go underneath that sword to get us access back to God. And do you know that on the cross, Jesus goes up and the sword falls. And because of His death, because of Him taking the payment for our lack of love, we are given access once again to the tree, to paradise, to God's very presence. That's how the book of Revelation ends. And you can know beyond a shadow of a doubt when you see Jesus hanging and dying for you, you can know beyond a shadow of a doubt, friend, that Jesus is at work pouring oil, tending to wicks to unthaw your frozen heart. That's how the story ends. And until we, that, that story end comes, we pray along with Jesus, along with John, come, Lord Jesus, come. Let's pray. Lord Christ, we ask that You would tend to the coldness in our own hearts. <laughs> and the only thing that will ever do that is if we get a glimpse of how much You've loved us first. Keep us vigilant, O oh Lord, to look at Jesus. To look at what He has done for sinners like us. How He asks nothing of us. He asks nothing of us but to come to Him to confess our need, to lift up the cup of salvation and to call on His name. Would you do that again in our hearts for the first time or for the billionth time? Would you show us Jesus? We ask this in His name. Amen.